Hello and welcome back to another episode of Keeping Up With The Classics. In today's episode, we are going to be looking at the different myths and the characterization of Circe. Now I'll be handing over to Maddie to take us through the somewhat checkered history of Circe. Okay, thanks Farabi. Circe was an enchantress hailed as the first witch in Western literature by Madeleine Miller. She is a semi-divine daughter of Helios, the Titan sun god, and sister to Aetes, keeper of the Golden Fleece, and Pasiphae, mother of the Minotaur and wife of King Minos. Some accounts say she's a daughter of Hecate as well. As for Circe's past, some accounts say that Circe had been married to the Prince of Colchis. Then they went on a little honeymoon, but once it was over, she killed him and took control of the throne. When it was discovered that Circe had murdered her husband... Sorry. Um, well, <laughs> <laughs> why are you laughing so much? I'm laughing at you. Why are you laughing at me? <laughs> Sorry, we should get back to the summary. Okay. okay. <laughs> so once it was discovered that Cersei had murdered her husband, um, she was exiled by her dad Helios to the island of Aea, I got it right, where she settles down and basically lives the rest of her life. So she has three main tales, plus a feature in a lost epic that I'm going to come to later. But the most well-known story of Circe is her role in the Odyssey. So Circe makes her debut in the Odyssey in Book 10, when Odysseus and his crew land on the island of Aea, and Odysseus sends an almost scouting crew of about 20 or so of his men. So they investigate the island, Oh, as well as Eurylochus, who's kind of his second-in-command, but he's kind of whiny and he's kind of annoying. Anyway, they all go very, very. <laughs> so they go and explore the island, and they come across Circe's house of polished stone in the middle of the woods, which is surrounded by like wolves and lions, but they're all tame for some reason. Anyway, Circe sees them and invites them in for dinner. Uh, she shows them excellent zenia, or so we think, um, and invites them all in to have a feast. But little to their knowledge, the food was all like potioned; it was kind of poisoned. So Circe turned all of the men, bar Eurylochus, because he was too whiny and didn't go in the house, into pigs. <laughs> they did keep their, like, human consciousness, though. Like, they still had active human thoughts. They didn't just go full pig. They were kind of trapped in there, which is a bit unfortunate for them. Right. <laughs> so Eurylochus clocks that they've all gone into the house and haven't come out again. So he goes back to report to Odysseus. Um, so Odysseus steps up to the mark and goes to try and see what's happened to his men. About halfway there, he gets intercepted by Hermes, though, who offers him the herb moly, which basically makes him immune to all of Circe's charms and, like, potions. So when Odysseus gets to the house and Circe starts to feed him that same kind of poisoned magical food, it doesn't affect him. So he's able to overpower her and threaten her um, to change his men back. But they kind of end up reaching some sort of compromise that involves Odysseus having to sleep with Circe, which ended up going surprisingly well because that was just the beginning of a year-long affair between these two it's poor wife I know poor Penelope she's really out here being loyal while Odysseus is out here sleeping with every woman that shows any interest in him well he did her dirty he did do her dirty but except for Calypso he had no interest in her but um yeah yeah then Cersei really is like a brilliant character in the Odyssey in the sense that she's brilliant for Odysseus's character development she's amazing for moving the plot along she gives us so much useful information like um telling Odysseus how to get into the underworld how to navigate down to there but also how to get past the monsters Scylla, Charybdis and the Sirens now 
I mentioned earlier that I was going to talk about three main tales. So I'm going to start the second one now. And it links to Scylla. Basically, Ovid's, in Ovid's Metamorphoses, uh, he has an origin story for the sea monster Scylla and it involves Circe. So it goes something like this. Glaucus was a fisherman turned sea god by eating magical herb, which was like really convenient. <laughs> so it said herb made him go full shape of water though. So he was like blue and had gills and all that jazz. So he wasn't exactly a looker. So understandably, the very pretty nip Scylla was terrified of him. So whenever he tried to make a move, she'd just like run away. <laughs> so Glaucus then he had... was out of his <laughs> he was out he was out of his league oh my god absolutely <laughs> well yeah his plan is basically to get Skiller into his league though because he goes to Cersei and basically explains the dilemma because he's desperate and asks for a potion that when given to Skiller would turn her into a fish-like form that was quite similar to his own because he thought that was the problem that they weren't the same kind of fish people and like <laughs> like that was the issue with them but yeah, that Sk- logic just makes sense, doesn't it? Obviously. <laughs> so while Skiller wasn't really into fishmen, Cersei was, and she fell in love with Glaucus, Glaucus, whatever his name is. I'm getting strong shape of water vibes from this. Definitely, I totally see it now that you talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So yeah, anyway, she agrees to make him a potion, but what she doesn't tell him is that she's got absolutely no intention of helping him pursue another woman. So she crafts this terrible potion that she pours into Skiller's pool of water when she's bathing. And this potion turns her into the sea monster Skiller that we all recognise from the Odyssey, the terrifying creature with six necks, who was like a mishmash of like dog and sea creature and a whole other bunch of nasty things. But she also changed Skiller's personality with this potion, which is quite unusual. So Skiller turned into this like being which was just an embodiment of rage. So she just went along consuming, destroying everything in her path until she'd literally isolated herself um on her own little island and i think that's how she got stuck on that island i think she literally just destroyed everything around her honestly a mood like if i don't have my cup of tea in the morning i become skiller (laughs) just destroy everything in her path gone yeah it's a rampage yeah the other small story involving cersei is a really quick one but i think it's quite important um for like the misconception of Cersei's character later on because I know Cersei is quite often interpreted to be quite a a malicious character and a story like this one so Cersei and Picus I'm going to very quickly summarize this it basically goes Cersei was in love with him he wouldn't return her affections because he was completely devoted to and in love with his wife so she got mad and turned him into a woodpecker (laughs) oof yeah (laughs) That's literally it. Like, <laughs> and there's literally nothing more to that story. I've tried like researching it, and that's that's all. That's all you get. She just turns him into a woodpecker, and that's that. I'm loving the deeper meaning behind this story. I really am. Oh yeah, yeah. Obviously, that's one packed with symbolism. But <laughs> okay, now we're finally going to get onto that lost epic that I briefly mentioned earlier. So we mentioned Odysseus's year-long affair with Circe. Obviously, they didn't exactly have contraception back then, so this resulted in. Uh, Cersei having three of Odysseus's children, Agrius, Latinus, and Telegonus. Telegonus is the important one here because the Telegony is the now lost epic all about Telegonus's life. And while it is lost, we can patch together bits of the storyline from references to it in other literary works like the Bibliotheca of Pseudo Apollodorus. It's quite complicated, so I'm just going to focus on the bit relevant to Cersei, and it goes something like this. So Cersei 
obviously who Odysseus had that affair with, gave birth to Telegonus, whose name means born far away. And Telegonus grows up living with Circe on the island of Aea, uh, grows up to become a man. Um, eventually, following the goddess Athena's advice, Circe tells Telegonus the name of his father and explains to him that he is a son of Odysseus. And she gives him this supernatural spear to defend himself on his little epic journey, which was tipped with the sting of a poisonous stingray and made by the god Hephaestus. So, Telegonus sets off on the beginning of his little journey, but unfortunately, a storm forces Telegonus onto Ithaca, but he doesn't realise where he is. He thinks he's just been washed up on some random island. He doesn't realise he's actually on Ithaca. What happens oh, next? Dear. Yeah. <laughs> this isn't going to go... No. Uh, what happens next is just not good, because he thinks he's in unfriendly land. He just resorts to piracy and begins to steal, unknowingly... Odysseus's cattle so Odysseus sees what's going on and is like well 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 what's going on here then um so he, he comes to defend his property and without realizing who the other is Odysseus and Telegonus fight um and during this fight Telegonus kills Odysseus with that weird spear I was talking about which this is a bit of a funny situation because it partially fulfills Tyreus Tiresias's prophecy from book 11 of the Odyssey that death would come to Odysseus and quote out of the sea because you know stingray but in another respect this completely contradicts um the, the fact that Odysseus's death was prophesied to be a gentle death that would come when he was like an old man and it would come peacefully to him so that's a bit of an odd situation yeah man Man's was meant to dip out peacefully. Like, this is not <laughs> what Tiresias gave any indication for I know it just completely like throws all that up in the air but yeah, so Odysseus lies there dying, and then at that moment, he and Telegonus recognise one another, and it's like that Spider-Man meme where they're both pointing at each other. <laughs> too um, late. Yeah, it is too late. So Telegonus kind of sits there regressing everything, just regressing all his life choices, um, and Odysseus dies. So Telegonus brings back Odysseus's body, Odysseus's wife Penelope, and Odysseus's son Telemachus back to Aea with him, where they bury Odysseus, Circe makes everyone immortal, Telegonus marries Penelope and Telemachus marries Circe and then I guess they all just live happily ever after. It's a bit of a wild ride but yeah that pretty much wraps up. A nauseatingly interlinked family at the end. It is it's really weird because it's not incest but it's getting a little bit close to it like Telemachus marrying Circe like he is marrying the woman that his father has slept with like no it's just like 50 shades of no. Yeah, I mean, they seem to have the same taste in women, literally, and it, it's a bit if I do say so. It is a bit. That is yeah, literally the same women. So, yeah, that will pretty much conclude our summary of Cersei. Well, thank you very much, Maddie, for that riveting tale. <laughs> um, so, Cersei, I have a question. Why woodpeckers and pigs do you have any idea why she she went with that <laughs> i know it seems a little bit random but i think she changes people into the creature that she feels is best fitting for their nature so the men of odysseus were pretty greedy they just kind of waltzed into her house and started eating all our food hence they got pigs um because i think pigs are kind of associated with like greed and gluttony um the woodpecker seems really random for picus um but if you understand a little bit of Picus's history as a character, he was known for his augury skills, which is the art of interpreting the will of the gods from studying the flight of birds. 
So naturally he got A, a bird, and B, he got the woodpecker because they're associated with prophecy, which kind of interlinks all of those little threads. So I don't think it is as random as it might seem. I think it is quite deliberate. She's quite a smart lady. She doesn't just like spin the wheel of animals and then just assign you one. Hmm, that's very interesting. So there does appear to be method to her madness. She's not just randomly allocating beasts to them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so when you talked about when um, Cersei turned Odysseus's men into swine, their psychology remained the same. So they were still aware of who they were. They were just trapped in pigs' bodies. Mm. But when she did, when she t- um, transformed Skiller, she did change Skiller's psychology. Why do you think that is? Well, I think in a nutshell, basically, the more emotionally invested Cersei is in you, the deeper the water that you're in. Because Odysseus's men, to an extent, were pretty much strangers to her. She didn't care so much for them. So she didn't, there was no need for her to go full, like, psychological torment on them. She just kind of shut them in a pig's body and that was it. Whereas she had a lot of jealousy and a lot of hate um, directed towards Skiller. So I think that kind of translated into completely morphing her personality as well into something more terrible. Um, So, yeah, I think this is kind of where we get this idea of Cersei being a really bitter and like jealous character, which has kind of bubbled up to the forefront of how people view Cersei. Because I know a lot of people see her as this kind of malicious, witchy character. And it's like very understandable to interpret that from these kind of things. But I think oh, she plays a very different role in the Odyssey. I need to try and like hold myself back from launching into that a bit prematurely. Yeah, no, I think that you do raise a good point because there are obviously more than one interpretation of Cersei's character and they do. there does seem to be quite a big disparity between them. So do you think that Cersei is mainly a positive or a negative force in this world overall? Yeah, overall, uh, I think it can, yeah, it, it can definitely be split straight down the middle between these smaller stories that we hear about Cersei. So like the incident with Picus, the incident with Scylla. These were later stories about her. They came from Ovid. Um, so just that alone means they might have just been more widely consumed by people. Like Ovid's Metamorphoses was hugely popular. Um, and if you're just looking at those stories, then yeah, you could understand this idea of Cersei being malicious and like hate-filled a jealous character because let's I'm not I'm not going to sugarcoat it she's not exactly nice to Pycus she's not exactly nice to Skiller if she doesn't like you she makes that very clear or if you've hurt her emotionally or if you if you are an obstacle to what she wants you're going to pay for it however the way she's presented in the Odyssey to me is a complete 180 at the beginning yeah we have the little blip with the pigs but she doesn't go, obviously it's not great, and I'm not suggesting that if you have the ability to turn people into pigs, you should. But she didn't go, she didn't go full ham. She didn't like fully psychologically mess them up. She just kind of turned them into pigs and that was that. And then she undid it and apologized for it. And from that point on, she's amazing in the Odyssey. She provides like outstanding Xenia to Odysseus and his men for a whole year, which is a hell of a long time to be basically hosting guests at your house feeding them, bathing them, like giving them good quality wine, all that other jazz. And then she gives Odysseus this information, which is so crucial to moving the Odyssey on. She helps him navigate down to the underworld in book 11. And then she helps him 
like get past the monster Skilla Charybdis. She gives him all this helpful advice over how to deal with the sirens as well. And oh, she shows a really in-depth understanding of Odysseus's character too, with the detail about um, give your men like earbuds of beeswax, but because I know you, you and your desire for like Kleos or Timae or whichever one it is, you'll want to be the only man to hear the sirens and live. So tie yourself to the mast. She gives him instructions that cater to his character um, and like his nature, his desires, which shows she is really understanding as well as being intelligent and powerful. I think she's such a complex character. And I think it is really unfair that she's got this label of like a malicious force because that only really comes from two smaller incidents. But the Odyssey, which is where Cersei really thrives, I don't think she's a bad character at all. What about you? Yeah, I do think that Cersei, she's so multifaceted. And in the Odyssey, she is absolutely invaluable on Odysseus's journey back yeah, I agree. to Ithaca. Without her, he never would have fulfilled his nostos. Yeah. But yeah, it is unfortunate that in the tale of Picus and also with Scylla and Glaucus, it didn't turn out that way. And she is characterised really negatively, I I feel, as, yeah. as a woman. You know, she seems very anti-feminist in that story. And it's not what you want from a powerful, a, a powerful, a strong female character. But yeah, she does kind of devolve into this jealousy. And it's I just don't think it's quite true to her character. I think there's a lot more to her than that. Yeah, I agree completely. Like, she's so complex and it's so unfair to just pigeonhole her as one thing, as a bad force, when there's so much more to her than that. So I think that Cersei's been hugely influential in the literary scene in the West because many aspects of her character have been used to form the archetype of the sorceress who's kind of, you know, cloaked in all this mystery and intrigue, but perhaps um, evil as well, some might say. And I think some uh, two very good examples of that are Morgan Le Fay and also um, Queen Titania from A Midsummer Night's Dream uh, by Shakespeare. And I think you had something interesting to say about that. Yeah, well, basically, I saw that a lot of people have read Titania as an inversion of Cersei. Um, because as rather than the sorceress transforming her lovers into animals, she becomes a lover of a donkey that's already been transformed, the donkey being bottom. And yeah, I didn't do too much more research on that, but I thought just as a surface level parallel, I thought that was really interesting. But yeah, you're definitely right about um, characters like Cersei. And I'd say Medea as well, to an extent. I think that later writers would definitely take elements of their characters to build up ones like uh, Titania, who, can I just say, Titania, her name literally means daughter of the Titans, and Cersei is daughter of the Titan sun god Helios. So, like, come on, there's an obvious link there. <laughs> but that's a really good link. Yeah. Um, I don't know too much about Morgan Le Fay, so did you want to explain a little bit more about that? I think that would be quite interesting to talk about. Yeah, when I was young, I used to be really into um, King Arthur Pendragon of Camelot, Ooh. and, you know, the, the Knights of the Round Table. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I did... I don't remember loads about it, but Morgan Le Fay or Morgana, as some people call her, she was Arthur's sister, I believe. And yeah. she was um, a sorceress as well. And she was like always messing with Arthur and, um, you know, his men. And I think it's quite interesting because now that we've studied Cersei and we see who she is, you can definitely kind of see how the seeds for her character 
could have been planted from Cersei because they're both sort of um, these enchantresses that are very good with herbs. And, um, you know, quite a popular narrative to run with is characterizing them as being evil. But I'm pretty sure Morgan wasn't wholly evil. I think that in some versions she might have been redeemed, but don't quote me on that. We know we've already talked about how we don't think Cersei was purely evil either. But I do think it's quite an interesting link. Yeah, I think there's another character that you can make a big link between. I think that's Cersei and Medea as, again, these kind of really powerful enchantress type characters. Again, they're both plagued by this. um, Why is it that we can never, ever get like a powerful woman in ancient literature that is just nice, that doesn't have some kind of fatal flaw or association with like murder or jealousy or like hatred like do you think that's just what why do you think that is sorry I know I'm flipping it and being a questioner here but I just really want to know your thoughts I think that honestly it's just a lot of thinly veiled misogyny in my opinion and I think that if you give well in the world of antiquity if you give a woman that much power especially women like Medea or um, Circe who um, are semi-divine so that gives them a lot of power compared to the ordinary mortal woman um i think if you give them that much power i think they try to offset it by giving them undesirable characteristics and in their eyes i mean for fear of sounding like a broken record we have discussed this in the last episode but um if you give a woman traditionally masculine traits, she does terrify the male audience. So I think that's why it seems a bit extreme with um, Cersei or Medea. But if you have that much power, I suppose the results would be a lot more extreme as well. I think it does make sense, um, their logic. It's just taken a bit too far. Yeah, I think what you said about being like a broken record, I don't think it's so much being a broken record, but more just as we do these episodes, we're kind of exposing or bringing up this pattern about every powerful woman from mythology or antiquity or just kind of any ancient works of literature always has this um, this flaw. I, I'm not going to call it a fatal flaw because it doesn't make them great, but it is such a running theme of having to like hinder or like almost handicap in a way. I'm I'm looking for a word and can't quite get it. What's it called when you have to when you like deliberately, you know how like a bird you like dock its wings to stop it from fully flying. Ah, oh, it's just this kind of this like deliberate um like forcing an error onto these characters to hold them back from being truly great or too powerful because they're female characters. Like especially in that time to have a female character who was just powerful and heroic just wouldn't wash. So yeah, I think it's so interesting how we're picking up on all of these all of these like misunderstood female characters. Each one has been deliberately like docked in some way to stop them from reaching their full potential, don't you think? Yeah, I think it's very interesting because in the world of antiquity there seems to be kind of two main functions or roles for women either they were the victims or like the damsel in distress or they were the villains. Yeah. And it it really sucks because you can't just get a woman that exists and she's just fine, you know? Either yeah. something terrible has to happen to her or she has to be capable of committing something terrible. And it's just a really harsh dichotomy, I think. 
Yeah, that's exactly what I'm getting at. I'm glad we're on the same page about this. It's just, oh, it's so <laughs> irritating. We need someone to create a really strong, I'm not going to say free from flaws because you need flaws in the character to give them depth and like uh, give them an opportunity to grow. But yeah, I'm still waiting for the day that we get a really cool character like that, a really cool female character like that. Well, do you think we've had any of them yet in like more modern works of literature? I think that's a very interesting question because I'm when I say modern, I'm talking really modern. I'm talking yeah, about same. the infamous young adult um, genre in literature. Yeah, go right on. Now. I'm talking Hunger Games and, here. <laughs> Yeah, like The Hunger Games or Divergent or books like that. But um, I just think that right now, um, people are so, authors are so focused on um, appealing to um, the, like the feminine, the feminist movement and trying to appear woke that they try to um, portray their uh, female protagonists as basically being men as well in a weird way that comes kind of full circle because yeah. their their women are always really powerful they're kind of like they're very um skilled in battle you know physically yeah, and is... um they don't show a lot of emotion and they're always bashing on women that are softer and in a weird way it kind of feels like we're regressing instead of progressing yeah that's a really good point that you've raised actually i guess i never really thought about it like that but all of the for people our age, because we're like, what, 17? I know you're a couple years older than me. But people our age are kind of like childhood novel heroes. Are people like Katniss Everdeen and what's her name? Triss from Divergent. It's only when you yeah. say it that all of these women are really modelled after men. It's actually once you say it, you really clock it. We haven't actually had a female character who's awesome because she's female, because she like really, her strengths are her female traits. Because part of what makes these girls awesome is like Katniss, she can shoot a bow, she can fight, or she's really, she's emotionally, not detached, but she's got a very different kind of temperament to other girls. <laughs> I'm not like other girls that you find in their kind of respective universes. That's so interesting. Well, it is to me anyway. Yeah. And I think it's quite, it's, it's, it becomes even more fascinating because because when you do have um, female characters that are portrayed to be feminine, it's still, um, and it's not like them being the um, the target of slut shaming or whatever, yeah. but um, they, they kind of play into the trope of the femme fatale, which yeah. is, you know, those, they're really, the seductresses, you know, the really sensual women. Yeah. And they use their wiles and their womanly ways to, um, trap men and I think that it, that then swings the pendulum in the opposite direction because then their sexuality is portrayed as being a negative thing still yeah I agree it's really it is a spectrum isn't it you get one end of the spectrum you get as you say like your bond girls your femme fatales the ones who use like their sexuality and those kind of like those female characteristics that get overly capitalized on um at one end of the spectrum and then you've got way on the opposite end you've got your like Tris Katniss characters who are almost so masculine like when are we going to get a middle ground if anyone listening has found a middle ground they think I would love to hear it I don't know about you Caribou but yeah me too I just think that we just need more um three-dimensional um realistic fully fleshed female characters and there is strength and weakness as well or what is considered to be weak as the traditionally like um feminine qualities there is strength to be found there and i just think that we need to make that progress 
Yeah, I agree. Like people listening, guys, gals, non-binary pals, any of you who are budding authors, like I I want someone to make this character. I want to be reading a book about this character in like 10 years from now. I really want to see that happen. Exactly. I just want a woman who embraces who she is and she can be strong, but the point of her role isn't to be strong. The point of her role is to just be who she is. Yeah, exactly. It's amazing that we still haven't found one yet. Oh, I've really enjoyed I this episode actually. We've we've really digressed, but I think it's still it's still good conversation, isn't it? Yeah, and I think it just underpins everything because our entire podcast is about the complexities and nuances of women in antiquity. And it turns out that a lot of these issues are still prevalent in society today. And that's that could be depressing, but also it's really interesting. Yeah, I agree entirely. Sorry, guys, we kind of got ahead of ourselves with chatting. So this might be a long one. But thank you so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed it. And we'll see you next week with the next one. Bye. Oh, 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 oh,